False Bottom Girls guides listeners through the wonderful, yet sometimes confusing, world of beer. Hi, my name is Rachel Hudson, and I'm the co-owner and head brewer of Pilot Brewing Company in Charlotte, North Carolina, and I'm also an advanced Cicerone. Hi, I'm Jen Blair. I'm the Beer Quality and Education Manager for Orpheus Brewing in Atlanta, Georgia, and I am also an advanced Cicerone, and welcome to our podcast. All right. Welcome, everyone, to this episode of False Bottom Girls. And uh, what we're going to do with you all today is uh, recently, Rachel and I had the opportunity to present at the Chicago Bruseum Beer and Culture Summit. Um, we did that actually just a couple of days after we took our Master Cicerone exam, and we presented on how taxes have affected beer and beer styles. Um, so we specifically focused on a few styles and we'll, we'll get, we'll talk through those in a moment, but we really wanted to also use this as a podcast episode because it is interesting and um, mm -hmm. we weren't able to get the, like the recording that we did for the Beer and Culture Summit. Um, so what we're going to do today is just walk through this presentation with you all as well in the event that you weren't able to attend the Beer and Culture Summit. So what we're going to do is Rachel's going to get us started talking about the you know, taxation in the United States, um, talk a little bit about Belgium and the development of Lambic. Then I'm going to talk about Germany and the development of Weissbier as well as England and kind of all the iterations Mild Ale has been through. And uh, then I will wrap up with a really quick kind of myth busting of Irish stout. And then Rachel's got some other beer and taxes quick facts that she's going to share. So what this episode, what you're going to hear is the presentation that we did for the Chicago Museum Beer and Culture Summit. So with that, Rachel, I'm going to let you take it away. Thank you. Feels good to be back. <laughs> I know we did an episode the day after our test but whew, that didn't feel like real life. Now I'm back in full swing. feel like we're getting back into the podcast and I like it. Right. So, so uh, I'm excited for this one because like, we've definitely never had anything about taxes and beer related stuff because, you know, when you choose topics, it's kind of one of the last things we think about. So this summit was pretty cool because the beer summit, it's, correct me if I'm wrong, Jen, but it's, all like historical presentations like it's about uh, history I, I will correct you because you Thank are you. wrong there yeah there are some historical um it's really pretty broad ranging and for the past two years it has been virtual as almost everything has um but they have just different different topics that you know when we're talking about culture it's so wide ranging and this year especially they did a really great job of having, you know, talk, speaking with brewers who used to be veterans and like what that experience was like for them. Um, and also speaking with, you know, people doing a lot of inclusivity work as well as these, you know, cool little niche presentations on, you know, like one of the ones I think was on um, Belgian hops, like in the early 1900s. Yeah. Um, yeah. So like very, very focused, very small topics, just blown up and talked about, you know, for next for an hour or so. So yeah, it it's, it does have a very historical bent to it, but it's yeah. not only historical. Yeah. I thought it was really cool. It's also like a 
conference, if you will, but it was mo mainly virtual with some mm -hmm. offsite events at different places. So it's not like it was in Chicago, like the offsite stuff, but it's, you know, one thing COVID has done is really made conferences a lot more available for people that might not normally get to go. So right. that's kind of cool. But enough about that. We're going to we're dive into what we talked about, as Jen said, beer and taxes. We're going to start with the United States and um, how they decided how they were going to tax beer. But so the federal taxation of beer began in the United States as a temporary war measure during the Civil War. Um, so, you know, as it, the saying goes, it's easiest to giveth and hardest to take away. So once they, uh, once the war was over, they decided they were going to keep using this tax. So they formed the United States Brewers Association, not the one that we all know and love up today, but they formed association um, in 1862 that assisted the federal government in paying and collecting $1 for every barrel of beer sold. Um, so, of course, when the war ended, the government decided beer taxation was going to continue and sent some U.S. brewers, um, sent the association, the U.S. Brewers Association to Europe to learn more about how beer taxes were being collected in different countries. And what they learned was that some countries were taxing about taxing on the size of your mash ton, the uh, vessel that you use to make your wort. Um, their sugar water that you need to, for fermenting. So uh, how big that actual vessel was would be like your tax rate or maybe some countries would, how much grain you actually, you put into that vessel would be taxed. Um, and then, you know, other places would tax on the amount of beer that came out in, of the uh, production, the brew day, like that was sellable. So the t US ultimately decided that they were gonna tax based on the amount of finished beer. And they report the barrels, they report the beer in barrels like we still do today. So um, one, if you ever go to a brewery or you take it a tour or just you hear someone talking about the term barrels, like we, I know we've touched base before about how that term has a lot of meaning, but in, especially in today's discussion, we are talking about like the amount of volume being put into a keg. So one barrel is like two big kegs what you're used to seeing on like the the movies with the you know part co college parties like that big keg two of those is one barrel <laughs> sorry i was wondering where you were going with that i was like in the movies <laughs> yeah because that's, that's what everyone knows they know the party scene with the big keg and the ice tub right, with the red right. solo cup that's what they know right yeah. right but yeah it's like you know kegs like you see in the yeah. movies <laughs> yeah well at every time i sit tell this conversation with someone here at the brewery I got kegs right behind me so I'm like you see these things right and <laughs> and the reason we don't have like full barrels anymore because could you imagine having to like hold that around and pick it up like no like, a full half keg is already uh, it's already heavy enough but anyway right. so we decided that's what we were going to do so we still do that today sellable product in the keg in the package is what we tax on um one of the cool things and, you know, disadvantage of being on a podcast, you can't see our presentation because have some cool pictures of these beer stamps. So beer stamps were used to put on kegs um, back then, much like liquor bottles have the, the little coating stickers today. It was a marker of, you know, what this beer was costing you know, for tax. And it would actually, 
like come off. It would like be on the cap of the keg. And, um, you know, it's meant to kind of like tear when you pull it off, like, oh, it's not, you know, this is done. So like some collectors back then probably carefully removed them and save them because you can go online, you can find these beer stamps, you can like pay, you know, hundreds of dollars if you want for them, if you're into it. But so a little fun fact. So um, now that the US has, you know, they decided what they are going to do, we're going to jump over to Belgium to talk about the history of their taxes and how that created a style specifically the Lambic style. So Belgium was the country that was going to create a tax based upon the size of the vessel. So Alambic beer kind of was born out of that uh, condition they had of like this, you know, vessel that they were using. So, so Alambic beer is a spontaneously fermented Belgian ale. Um, it typically, the grain bill typically features Pilsner malt and unmalted wheat and aged tops, pretty uh, light on the character of the malt bill, nothing crazy. It will be it'll have an acidic character as well as like light, funky barnyard and bread flavors. Because Lambic goes through that process of once the beer is brewed, which we will talk about the brewing process, it, it's uh, cooled off in a cool ship and allowed all these like funky wild yeast contaminants in the air, like come into through the windows, through the rafters and as the beer is cooling overnight, it's also getting a little, you know, cultures are getting into it and starting to kick up spontaneous fermentation. Um, but one of the most unique characters about Lambic beer is it's turbid mashing. So when we talk about the mash tun, again, the mash tun is the vessel where you add your grain and your water, you make a porridge-like substance. Eventually you separate that water mixture, which we call wort from the porridge-like substance because you don't need all that grain and carry on so to the next kettle because to boil so we're talking about the mash ton having and so in the 1800s belgium had a tax on the capacity of the ton so that is how much you can fit into or i'm sorry it's the the capacity of the mash ton is set but so the game was how much grain can we fit into this vessel um so they constructed small mash tons and filled them as full as possible with grain where there was little room left to add water. Um, so, sorry. So the water they needed to add needed to be kind of cool because if it was too hot, it would turn their mash into a cement mix um, because there's not very much room in there, it's all grain. And as a result, the mash resembled like a sponge and yielded a mash liquor with a large amount of ungelatized starches. Um, so, to get this wort separated from the grain, brewers would push a basket, um, called like a brewer's basket on top of the mash tun to create an impression that would fill with the sweet wort liquor. Um, that turbid mash liquor would be pumped into the kettle, boiled for a few minutes and sprinkled over on top of the mash. And they would continue this process over and over until the liquor, the sweet water was clarified um, and then once they got that all done that to the point where they're satisfied, all the rest of the wort would be put over into the um, boil ton and they would continue on the, the beer like normal. Um, and there would get a lot, like the, the beer would result in a large amount of dextrins, which are really like, they're not easy consumable sugar by regular brewer's yeast, but wild yeast like Brett will 
um, consume dextrins and like make the beer finish out and be a lot drier um, than a normal Saccharomyces yeast would. So that's Lambic in a nutshell. And it was very much a style that evolved due to um, the constraint of the tax on the mash ton. So it's kind of interesting how that works out. Yeah, and I turbid mash is one of those things that's on my list of things that I want to do. I, on a homebrew oh. scale, it's a little bit easier, I think, probably yeah. than on, on a professional scale. I definitely don't want to do it. <laughs> I don't. It seems very, like you said, because like, I mean, obviously I'm not constrained by any sort of constraint here, except the volume of my mash ton. Like, but uh, I don't even think I could could do it with my setup like Jen says it's hard for a bigger brewery mm -hmm. I mean I don't even know you have to have a, a equipment pretty much set up for that I don't think I've ever seen a I guess we have to go to Belgium yes yeah, so agreed we should go to Belgium on a field trip and I think uh, I haven't seen a professional brewery do a turbine mash but I if I was to reason my way through how they would make it happen, it might be kind of like a sort of like a modified Vorloff kind of thing where maybe you're utilizing, um, you know, your ports and your pumps a little bit more rather than like trying to push a basket down into your mash. Although I also feel like if you're the kind of brewery who's going to do a turbine mash, you're probably also the kind of people who get a brewer's basket. Like if you're going to do it, yeah. you're going to do it like whole cloth. Um, but yeah, so if, if you are a professional brewer and you have done this, let us know what your process is, because I'm just genuinely interested what that looks like on a professional scale. Yeah. So um, thank you for that, Rachel, and for talking us through the turbid mash and Lambic. Um, so I'm going to move us over into Germany, where we're going to talk about how vice beer, the taxation of vice beer actually helped fund the Catholic counter-revolution. And again, like Rachel said, like when this has been modified for a podcast, you lose the visuals of, of some of the things that we shared, which we can definitely put up on social media uh, so everyone can kind of reference what we're talking about in terms of like Rachel mentioning the beer stamps. And one of the things that I always like to point out when we're talking about Germany and the Reinheitsgebot is when you're you know, a lot of times now when we think of these countries in this history, we picture like the country as it is now and really looking at a map of what we think of now as Germany, you know, in the 17 and 1800s and even older than that, uh, you know, it's, it's really a collection of kingdoms uh, rather than one like unified country. So we are going to be talking about Reinheitsgebot. Um, I know I've mentioned to Rachel before, I have been talked at by plenty of bearded dudes who like, this will be like beer nerd 201 where they start to develop like very definite opinions about what they think Wayne Heiskabat <laughs> was about. And um, they're all the same, like nobody has an original opinion on this. So just know that if you're settling down to like stroke your beard and talk to me about, or talk at me about how you think it's really more um, of a taxation vehicle, like you are not unique in that. Everybody knows that, so just stop. <laughs> uh, so for today though, what we're doing is viewing the Reinheitsgebot through the lens of it being a consumer protection law 
on its face, even though, yes, we all know it's more of a taxation vehicle, but it uh, there was a consumer protection aspect to it. So Reinheitsgebot was enacted in 1516. And I don't remember if we've ever gone deep into Reinheitsgebot. I don't think we have. I think we've just referenced it. And I don't really think we need to, if I'm we, being honest. Yeah. Everybody gets it. Um, if you don't get it, go read the logger book, of course. Uh, but the law itself is fairly simple and says that in Bavaria, so again, we're talking about this kingdom of Bavaria, uh, beer can only be made with barley, hops, and water. And as a consumer protection law, it was super important because it protected Bavarians from unscrupulous brewers and tavern keepers. It, you know, it kept them from being able to add poisonous hallucinogenic or psychotropic ingredients to beer, which was something that was fairly widespread. And when something like beer is a staple in your everyday life, that is a very serious thing. You know, it's kind of like if our um, water was, was harmful or people were putting like psychotropic or hallucinogenic ingredients in our water, right? It would be a very big deal that we would want to protect consumers from. So the adoption of using hops and beer for the preservative powers also led to the opportunity to decree, to decree other additions such as Gruet forbidden. And I don't think we've talked about Gruet that much on the podcast, probably because I do not like Gruet. So. <laughs> yeah. Um, but the Gruet right is an entire other part of, of kind of Reinheitsgebot. So it is multifaceted, multifaceted uh, law that had several different implications to it. So what Reinheitsgebot also did was largely protect wheat from being used for brewing so that it could be used for bread. So at the time, half of Munich's population survived primarily from beer and bread. Uh, so it was really important to make sure that those were both being protected in a variety of ways. And selecting barley to be one of the permitted ingredients also effectively selected bottom fermenting beers as those were the beers that were typically brewed with all barley. So as you can see, like this is, you know, just one sentence and it's one sentence in this giant book of laws, but it really had a profound impact on shaping what we think of when we think of German beer. So when the Reinheitsgebot became law, barley was our main grain used to brew beer. Uh, however, there was a small group in the Dangenberg region of Bavaria that was using wheat to brew beer rather than barley. Uh, so when Reinheitsgebot was enacted, Wilhelm IV gave them an exclusive right to continue brewing with, with wheat, thus making them an exception to Reinheitsgebot. And there are a lot of carve-outs once uh, Germany was united, they, that, you know, the, um, Reinheitsgebot was kind of one of the sticking points with the rest of the, the different kingdoms and such as being united because you have things like Kolsch and Altbier and Gosa that fall technically outside of Reinheitsgebot. Uh, so the, this Dangenberg uh, exemption for them to be able to continue brewing with wheat is one of several carve outs that we've seen throughout history to allow like regional beer specialties to continue to be brewed within Germany once Germany was united. The year after Reinheitsgebot was signed into law uh, is the in 1517 is very a turning point in, in world history uh, because in 1517 is when Martin Luther posted his 95 theses on the door of the All Saints Church, which marked the beginning of the Protestant Reformation in Europe. 
in northern Germany in places such as Hamburg and Dresden, uh, those areas became Protestant, whereas Bavaria remained very much Catholic. Uh, so fast forwarding a few more years, in 1600, Maximilian became the new ruler of Bavaria, and he was looking for a way to collect more tax revenue to finance the Catholic counter-revolution to the Protestant Reformation happening in Europe, and he found it in Weissbier. So because Weissbier is a top fermented beer, it doesn't take as long to complete fermentation as the bottom fermenting beers that were being made with barley. And it's also a style that is designed to be enjoyed while it's very young. And if you've ever had to judge a wheat beer category, you know that it's a very good education in how quickly wheat beers can age. Uh, so they're designed, they're faster to brew, they're designed to be enjoyed while they're very young, so it was going to be a quicker source of revenue. It's not clear whether Maximilian purchased the Weissbier brewing rights back from the Dengenbergs or whether the rights vested back into the Duke of Bavaria when the Dengenberg family died off, but what did happen is the royal family had a monopoly on the right to brew Weissbier, and so thus Weissbier became the main income for the state of Bavaria during the 1700s. And that being the main income also meant that that was used to fund this counter-revolution that was happening in Bavaria in response to the, uh, to the Protestant Reformation happening. Um, and I think that's a that's a really cool thing to think about how something like vice beer was the main income for anyone, you know, during yeah. the like during any point in time. And this, you know, here we're talking about a kingdom. Like we're not talking about like yeah, I work for Schneider Vice. And yeah. In that case, like <laughs> yeah, like vice beer is your main source of income, but you're probably probably as a brewery not using it to fund a counter revolution. Uh, maybe you are. I you know I don't know. So that's, uh, that's about Germany and how Weissbier was taxed in order to fund this Catholic counter-revolution. And there's so much more about the Reinheitsgebot that is really interesting to learn about. You know, we brought up a few topics that if any of them kind of catch your, catch your ears, uh, you can go learn more about them. Um, but just don't talk at people at, about how it's really a taxation vehicle because we, we know, everybody knows. Um, so with that, I'm going to jump back across the, I almost said across the pond, but that's, that's not quite right, across <laughs> the channel uh, to England and Ireland. And the when we're talking about England, there's, this story gets a little like twisty, turvy. Um, I don't think that was the correct term. Anyway, there's a lot of twists and turns. <laughs> I don't think turvy is a word. Um, but in England, we're going to start with the Free Mashton Act of 1880. And so what the Free Mashton Act did in 1880 was it changed the focus of England's taxation on brewing, um, changing the focus from malt to sellable beer. So this is one of the examples Rachel talked about at the very beginning of you know, how different countries are taxing their, their beer. Um, prior to that, the, what was the kind of the, the law in terms of taxation was the 1830 Beer Act. 
And what that had done was repealed all excise duty on beer. So excise taxes are primarily taxes that must be paid by businesses on the manufacture of a good rather than the sale of a good. So instead of having excise taxes, what was happening was the ingredients used to brew beer, malt, and hops were being taxed instead. And prior to, like, be, because of laws like this uh, 1830 Beer Act, leading up to the Free Mashton Act, brewers were only able to use malted barley in their beers. And so from 1816 to 1847, English brewers could only use malt, hops, water, and yeast. So one thing to know about English beers is they're very adjunct heavy. And a lot of styles will permit the use. And when we're talking about adjunct heavy today, they like they remain very adjunct heavy. So, um, you know, any beer style, any English beer style is not going to be uncommon to see the uses of sugars or flaked maize or caramel or other kinds of syrups in the beers. Um, that wasn't the that wasn't always the case. Uh, so sugar was allowed in brewing in England after 1847. Um, but what that also meant was that brewers couldn't use wheat or rye to create fermentable sugars. Um, so this was particularly a problem during years when there was a really poor barley harvest. They weren't able to make up that gap between what they needed in terms of supply and what the demand was. So in 1880, the Free Mashton Act, what that meant was brewers were now able to use adjuncts such as maize, rice and unmalted barley and they um, so they they're able to use those adjuncts and I we've talked a little bit about adjuncts before mostly I think in the in the case of corn and rice but mm -hmm. adjuncts are alternative sources of extra of extract used to replace a portion of the malt and I know during our beer judge training I had somebody ask about that because what we hear about a lot now are adjunct stouts um, and this is a different thing, like adjunct in terms of adjunct stouts has kind of been co-opted. Um, and that like in that situation, they're talking about adjuncts like, like gummy bears and yeah, yeah, pastry stouts and donuts and all of that in the truest brewing sense of the word adjunct. We're talking about alternative sources of extract that's replacing a portion of the malt, not just like throwing a bunch of shit into your mash time. So for example, an American lager is sometimes called an adjunct lager because up to 40% of the malt may be replaced by corn or rice. And there's actually several beer styles that uh, use adjuncts from American lager to Flanders red ale. And specifically with England, mild ale is a classic English style that changed due to brewers, uh, that changed due to brewers being able to use adjuncts such as maize, rice, and sugar. So what those adjuncts did was lighten the body and help make mild ales drinkable faster. Uh, so kind of like our vice beers, we're trying to get like the turnaround time to be really short and be able to get them in, you know, into the customer selling as quickly as possible. And then the use of dark sugars for the end of the 19th century after the Free Mash Ten Act also made the color of mild ales gradually darker. And mild is mild ales in particular, they've been around since a time when brewing was done by private citizens in households rather than in industrial breweries. 
And terms like mild, old, and stock are some of the oldest words used to describe British beer, and they originally denoted strength and age. Uh, but in the late 19th and early 20th centuries, mild ale came to mean beers that were brown and malty. So with mild ale, by the time World War I was beginning in 1917, it was the most popular beer style in England. Uh, as wartime restrictions on ingredients began to rise, the gravity and thus the ABV of mild began to fall. And it was during this time that British brewers began using various combinations of colored malts such as amber and brown malt to compensate for the reduced strength of the beer. And then the Wall Street crash of 1929 happened, which caused a worldwide recession, which led to the British government increasing taxes on beer in 1831. And what happened with this is brewers knew that their customers couldn't afford to pay more for beer. So they instead lowered the gravity of mild ale to be able to keep the price the same. And what that also means is that the ABV of mild ale dropped to about three to 3.8% and that it remains in that range today. So since 1931, mild ale has been uh, fairly standard in terms of what it means, but that wasn't always the case and it would continually change based on what the taxation was. Um, so it's gone through a few incarnations due to taxes, beginning with the Free Mastchun Act and then continuing to the early 1930s. And English brewing history is definitely one of those that can be really hard to keep track of because names change. Um, like I mentioned, something like mild ale used to mean something completely different 150 years ago, um, as did like stout and stock. Uh, so it's even now, you know, reading through books on like the history of English beer, there are times when I'm like, okay, wait, I'm like, I need to construct a flow chart to keep yeah. track of all of this. <laughs> yeah. Uh, and especially like as breweries, you know, that started like consolidate and now it's like, okay, wait now, oh, who God. owns who? And like, you definitely need like the the push pins with the red string to keep British the logger book straight. like did that to me like the logger book was like well I mean it was it made all sense but it was like okay and then these guys bought out these guys and then these guys bought out these guys and these guys bought out these guys and now it's even out to date right <laughs> right exactly yeah <laughs> yeah so oh, then so the, much. Hard to yeah through. so much stuff uh so then the last thing that I have is one of those one of those stories that gets shared really often because it sounds like a good story and it's not true. So we're going to talk quickly about Guinness and roasted barley. And this is again, one of those, uh, when I was looking, researching for this beer and taxes, I came across this story and the source was also one of those, um, kind of clickbait sites that also has an article <laughs> about how uh, beers, when somebody says a beer is top fermenting, it's because they add the yeast to the top of the beer. Um, so, you know, like that's immediately when I see this story on the same site, I'm like, this cannot possibly be true because you don't fact check anything apparently. Yeah. Um, but when we're talking about Irish stouts, you know, one of the hallmarks of it is that pronounced coffee-like roasted flavor. And there are, and we've talked about this in our stout episode, we have two generally different kinds of Irish style stouts. 
So one of them is going to be the Dublin style. And when we're talking about Dublin style, um, you think of Guinness, right? Guinness draft is the, the, style, the beer that created the style. So a Dublin style Irish stout uses roasted barley and is more bitter and drier than a cork style Irish stout. So a cork style Irish stout, think <laughs> Murphy's, um, it, cork style Irish stouts do not have roasted barley. So they're sweeter, they're less bitter, and they have more flavors from chocolate malts and other specialty malts rather than those flavors from roasted barley. And for a fun, like easy to do sensory experience, um, doing a side, a blind side by side with Guinness Draft and Murphy's is we'll show you what those differences are. They're not huge. It's like it's even doing them side by side is still hard to pick out which one is which, but most of us have fairly easy access to Guinness Draft and Murphy's Irish Stout. Um, so that's definitely a fun one to try to do. So this urban legend on this website that says top fermenting beers are that way because yeast is added to the top um, has perpetuated this, this legend that Arthur Guinness changed his family's recipe to begin using roasted barley rather than black malt. And the reason why he changed it is because malt was taxed while barley was not. So if he switched the grains from malted barley to raw barley that has been roasted, he would have to pay less in taxes. Um, this is patently untrue. Black patently malt untrue? <laughs> I don't know, uh, but it's patently untrue. Um, because Guinness didn't actually start using roasted barley until the 1930s. Arthur Guinness II had actually told Parliament in 1807 that brewing with raw grain was an evil. Um, so yeah. the Guinness family didn't even subscribe to using that. So if somebody ever tries to tell you while stroking their beard about, <laughs> you know, well, actually, Guinness started using roasted barley. Um, this is on like the same level as like, do you know why they're called India Pale Ales? Yeah. Uh, so you that is actually not true. Guinness didn't start using roasted barley until the 1930s. And if you have the opportunity to like slap this fact down to somebody, <laughs> definitely let us know. We, we want to hear about that. Cut, cut their beard off. Awesome. <laughs> cut their beard off and wear it <laughs> you're you're the one with the beard now <laughs> so yeah with that I'm going to let Rachel wrap up with some of our kind of beer and tax quick facts thank you welcome very back nice. to the stage Rachel everyone thank you very much well Egypt was likely the first civilization to tax beer Queen Cleopatra imposed a tax on beer in order, she claimed, to discourage public drunkenness. However, it's widely believed that the tax was actually used to raise money to fund war with Rome, which I am sure is 100% true. Uh, there's a book called Beer Economics, and there's an entire chapter about how England used the sale of porter to fund war with France. So yeah, like beer has been used to fund yeah. war for a very long time because we all really like everyone's to drink. Gonna drink it yeah you know? <laughs> one last thing i thought was kind of fun uh at the north american wife carrying championship first prize prize is the wife's weight in beer and five times her weight in cash <laughs> and in the united states prizes even paid in beer are taxable for federal income tax purposes so make sure that you are filling out your forms correctly. 
when we give you free beer. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Let's see. In 1695, Great Britain raised taxes on beer, making gin the cheapest beverage in England. Uh, Gin was taxed at, at about 2D, which is about two pennies. So about two pennies per gallon gin was taxed, whereas beer was taxed at about four shillings or about 57 pennies per gallon. So that's a huge tax difference when you're making your drink of choice. You know, Uh, the difference in price is considered the root of a serious drinking problem in the country, the 18th century, Um, which this fact is also pretty true for Belgium, too. They had a period of time where beer was taxed way more than gin and a lot of people turned to gin. Right. Um, it was the similar, that was a very big problem in the United States as well, which was very much the lead up to <laughs> prohibition was it, yeah. it wasn't beer drinking. It was gin drinking uh, and like rot gut kinds of, of yeah, liquor yeah. specifically that led to a huge endemic. Yeah. So okay. that was um, very, uh, pretty much like word for word, the presentation we did, we did with the Chicago Museum and the Beer and Culture Summit, and definitely would like to thank them again for selecting our proposal and letting us be there. And uh, next year, I highly recommend everyone keep an eye out, follow them, uh, Chicago Museum, on social media to be able to find out when they're taking proposals. And uh, again, if there's something really interesting in, you know, in beer history or in even in current history that you would like to talk about, uh, definitely please think about doing a proposal and presenting someplace like the Beer and Culture Summit, because it's so important that we're covering, you know, historical events from different perspectives and hearing them from different voices. Uh, So keep an eye out on that. I think they normally do the proposal process maybe like July or so Rachel does that sound about right usually like midsummer they'll start looking for proposals all I remember is that you were like oh we can make a proposal but we have to submit it in like six hours I was like okay yeah which is very uncharacteristic (laughs) of me I really don't normally um, do last minute things it is uncharacteristic but you know yeah that's what we knew about it right that's um one of the things that uh I will give us kudos on is at the beginning of the year Rachel and I had like you know brainstormed these are all the things that we would like to do for our podcast how we would like to see it grow and doing a presentation as False Bottom Girls was one of those things on the list. So very good job to us, Rachel. Mission accomplished. We Thank achieved you. one of the goals that we set for ourselves um, as a podcast in order to continue growing. And so that was that was a super cool thing. Um, you know, like Rachel mentioned, we did it like two days after the master exam. So it was still a little bit like, ah, and like it was over. Brain fog, yeah. Yeah, but then and like thinking back to it it's like that's super cool I think almost and maybe actually with this every single thing that we've said we wanted to accomplish this year we've been able to accomplish so one of those things also is our Patreon account and I'm one of the reasons why I'm super happy to be back and recording is we have a new patrons and Um, We want to thank everyone who is a patron. So thank you to Chris, Jesse, Gabby, Paul, Lainey, Maggie, Sandra, Mike, Angelica, Scott, Stephen, and Stacy. 
um, thank you to all of you for being patrons of ours and continuing to support us as we grow. And of course, thank you to everyone for your support and listening always um, you know, with our Patreon since it's been a little while since we've recorded. Um, when you join our Patreon, the, you get uh, a bonus monthly episode where we do a deep dive into a beer style and we typically recruit ideas directly from our patrons on what kinds of beer styles they would like to learn about. Um, we also do monthly AMAs where we just hang out on Zoom with any of our patrons who would like to come hang out and talk with us. And that's, that's, that's a lot of fun. That's something I know Rachel and I both look forward to each month is getting to interact with our patrons and just, you know, hang out and, and talk and have questions and like catch up with each other. So thank you to all of you who are patrons. If you would like to learn more about our Patreon, you can go to our website, which is falsebottomgirls.com. I almost said at gmail.com and I was like, <laughs> nope, that's, that's called you an can, email address. You can use that. We will, yes. we will get a message from you. <laughs> yes, yes. You can also contact us at falsebottomgirls at gmail.com and you can give us a follow on Instagram and Facebook at False Bottom Girls. And, you know, any questions, any concerns, any topics you would like to see, please let us know. We love hearing from all of you. And one last time, I, I, I think I always say it's been a while since we've asked this, but then I continue to ask it. So it hasn't been a while, but please take a couple of minutes. It really doesn't take very long to subscribe, rate and review us. Yes. wherever you find your podcast that really, really helps us. I think that's probably one of the most helpful things you can do for us being able to, you know, like move up in the algorithm. I don't know if you move up in an algorithm, but get more visibility. Yeah. Uh, so more people can learn about us, but thank you everyone for always, uh, you know, we'll have people reach out or start following us because their friends told them about us and that's super cool. And that's very powerful. And we love, we love that you, like us enough to yeah. refer us to your friends and tell your friends to listen. Yeah. To I'm astonished every time. Yeah. I will never, I'll never <laughs> cease to amaze me. Yeah. Awesome. Well, Rachel, thank you for your time today. And I hope all of you enjoyed this presentation on beer and taxes. And I thought I had some like tax saying to go out on, but I don't. This has been False Bottom Girls. And we make the brewing world go round.